So how much control do we actually have over the outcome of the game? How can we evaluate whether the decisions we make are good or bad decisions if we don't rely on outcomes? How do we detach ourselves from the results? These are really important questions for us to ask as coaches. And in order to answer these questions, Nate and I have decided to have a conversation with world-class poker player, Annie Duke. Annie is the author, speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space, as well as a special partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners, a seed stage venture fund. Annie's first book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, she has won more than $4 million in tournament poker. During her career, Annie won a World Series of Poker bracelet and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. She retired from the game in 2012. In the next two episodes, we are going to unpack the complexity of decision-making and how we can't always trust our own thinking. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast, the podcast to help you grow as a leader and build a better culture. My name is JP Nurman, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. In addition to this podcast, I'm a leadership coach and culture consultant. To learn more about how my business, TOC, can support you and your organization, visit tocculture.com. This episode is brought to you by the TOC newsletter. Every Thursday, you'll receive a short email with food for thought from Nate or my leadership 311 which includes three thoughts, one tip, and one question on a specific leadership or culture topic. If you sign up for the newsletter, you'll also receive the notes to each episode of the podcast, as well as our top 10 podcast episodes and my top 10 articles. Subscribe using the link in the description of this episode or simply go to tocculture.com and click on newsletter. Coach, are you frustrated with where your culture is at? Are you struggling to bring the vision you have for your culture to reality? Or maybe you're feeling on the brink of burnout in your coaching. Or maybe you just feel like you're not the coach you want to be yet. The truth is that many teams fail because the leaders lack clarity on their leadership philosophy. Coaching is way too hard of a profession to thrive in if you don't have a clearly defined leadership philosophy. Which is why I'm excited to share with you one of our latest online courses, Clarifying Your Leadership Philosophy. In this self-paced online course, you'll get a roadmap for how to develop your own leadership philosophy so that you can become the leader needed to build the culture you want. The course covers topics like crafting your own mission and vision statements, clarifying your core values, establishing personal disciplines, creating your own leadership manifesto, and much more. The course contains four modules and over 25 lessons that will help you clarify your leadership philosophy and become the leader needed to build an extraordinary team culture. To get access to the course, go to tocculture.com forward slash store or click the link in the show details. Well, Annie, it's a pleasure to have you with us here on the podcast. I've been following your work for a while now. And as we'll discover as we get into our conversation here, there's a lot of ways that I've really been influenced just in thinking about all of the decisions that we have to make as coaches. And we're going to try to put our conversation today in that context a little bit as most of our listeners are in the coaching world. But just to introduce our audience kind of to the, the premise of um, your book and a lot of your work here, I wonder if you could start with just telling us the story from the Super Bowl back in 2015. And I'll use the story at the beginning of your book, just to introduce the idea of how sometimes we get it wrong when we look back and things don't necessarily go the way that we thought they would. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of errors that we make as decision makers. 
and they they really come from short shortcuts that we take uh and you know shortcuts can be good they can be efficient they can save you time but uh in the wrong circumstances a shortcut can really go wrong um and i think one of the the best examples of showing sort of where these shortcuts can go wrong actually comes from the the 2015 super bowl uh people might remember this one it was the um uh the seahawks against the uh patriots all right so anyway the patriots were obviously a juggernaut at that point but pete carroll is obviously an amazing coach as well and what happened was so they're in the super bowl they get down to 26 seconds left in the whole game and the seahawks are on the one yard line of the patriots now remember there's only 26 seconds left though so there's not a lot of time here but they only have to move the ball one yard uh a crucial factor in understanding this is that they have one timeout, the Seahawks. So, um, you know, for people obviously who know football, uh, that creates a clock management issue uh, because um, they're on second down. And so potentially they could try to score on second, third and fourth down. Uh, but we know it's very hard to get off three downs with only one uh, timeout when you only have 26 seconds left on the clock. So uh, what happens is that there's an expected play. Um, and I, Nate, you know, do you want to say what the expected play was? Because I'm sure, I'm sure you remember this as well as I do. Yeah, everybody expected uh, the Seahawks to run the ball with Marshawn Lynch being that close to the goal line. And, and um, that's not what Pete Carroll ended up doing. So just as you said, there's an expected play. And the expected play is that Pete Carroll is going to have Russell Wilson, the quarterback, hand this ball off to Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch is known as the beast uh, because he's obviously an incredible running back. Um, and he, he's obviously very good in short yardage situations because he's ginormous and strong. Um, so uh, everybody thinks, well, obviously, if you're, you've only got to move the ball one yard, you're going to hand it off to the running back. The running back's going to you know, try to plow through the line. Uh, but as you just pointed out, that's not what Pete Carroll did. He actually called for a pass play. He called for uh, uh, Russell Wilson to throw the ball to the right corner of the end zone. And it was intercepted. So that ended the game. Now, I don't know if you either of you recall what the headlines looked like the next day. Do you have any recollection of what the reaction to that was? They were brutal. It was one of the, <laughs> he was being called out as the worst play call in the history of, of sports. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there was one headline, I can't remember, it was someone that actually called him an idiot. So, I mean, and let's let's agree, like, Pete Carroll, by all standards, is not an idiot. If you looked at uh, USA Today, they said it was the worst play call in Super Bowl history. There was one that called it the worst play call in NFL history. So it wasn't just like it was the worst call in, in a Super Bowl. It was just the worst call, period, ever. I actually want to run this thought experiment with you so that we can see. So here's what happens, right? We have a disastrous outcome which is the ball is intercepted. And then uh, obviously people are like, that was the worst decision apparently in the history of the NFL, according to at least one outlet. But the consensus is one of the worst decisions in the history of the Super Bowl. So now let's just do the thought experiment for a second. Okay, I want both of you to imagine. He calls for the pass play, super unexpected. The Seahawks catch it for the game-winning touchdown. What do the headlines look like the next day? What a clever coach. Nobody saw it coming. He was so clever in doing that. Best call in Super Bowl history? Maybe. Is he an idiot or a genius now? Genius. Right. Is this why he's going to the Hall of Fame? Yeah. There you go. 
right? Okay, so now let's think about what the error is here, right? The play is the play. The outcome of the play actually doesn't tell you very much on the one time whether it was a good play. In the same sense that uh, if we're flipping coins and I call heads and it lands tails, it doesn't ma mean that I'm a bad decision maker, right? Just because it happened to land against me. Um, or uh, more simply, we can think about if I go through a green light and I get in an accident, it doesn't mean I'm a bad decision maker, right? So we need to understand something about the quality of the decision because on any given try, uh, you can make a perfectly good decision. So like I could be flipping coins with you and you could be paying me $2 for every $1 that I lose. So if I'm going to call coins in that situation, I'm clearly making a very good decision. Now, if I happen to call heads and it lands tails, that does not affect whether the decision was good or not because you're giving me $2 for every $1 that I lose in the same sense that I shouldn't stop going through green lights if I happen to get in an accident. I, I didn't make it a decision that was wrong. Luck intervened. So let's let's work backwards and try to figure out what the quality of this play actually was. Remember, there it's second down, so they've got three possible tries um, at the end zone, and they've got to move the ball one yard, but they only have one timeout. All right, so let's work this out. Let's say that we completely agree that handing it off to Marshawn Lynch is a good idea. If you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch and he doesn't score, what happens to the clock? Keeps running unless they call a timeout. And right. So they're going to have to burn the timeout, right? Mm -hmm. In order to stop the clock. Okay. So now let's say they hand it off to Marshawn Lynch again. They have no timeouts left. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't score, do they get a third play? Nope. Nope. Okay. So if you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch twice as your first two plays, you only get two. Now, what happens if on first down uh, or on second down, rather, or on third down, they pass the ball and it's incomplete? So they don't score in that way. What happens to the clock now? Stops. Stops. So you don't have to use a timeout, right? So mm -hmm. we could imagine you could pass, run, run, or you could run, pass, run. Those two combinations get you three downs instead of two. Okay, so my question to you is just to start, if you're playing against the Patriots 2015 defense, would you prefer to have three tries at the end zone or two? Absolutely. You want the three. You want the three. Okay. So now the question is, what does it cost you, right? So we know that running a pass play is going to get you the third down. So the question is, what is the cost of that? Also, just as an aside, I just want to point out that this problem is going to come up 25% of the time if you run twice, because Marshawn Lynch in that situation will score half the time. So half the time you burn your time out and then he runs again and half of the time you just lose the game. So 25% 20, of the time, you're going to lose the game that way. Okay, so we have to figure out what is the cost of this, right? To get our third attempt, what's the cost? And the cost is the rate of interception. Do you see why that is, right? Because obviously if it's caught for the game-winning touchdown, we're happy. If it's uh, incomplete, the clock stops, right? So there's no harm, no foul there. So the only thing that we care about, the only extra thing that could happen here is an interception. So the question is, what is the rate of interception there? Because that's the cost of getting a third play. Now, I assume that we can agree if it's going to get intercepted like 25% of the time, we probably wouldn't want to pay that cost, right? So do, do either of you want to take a stab at what the rate of interception is in that situation? 
Well, I feel like I cheated because I read the book. So I think you mentioned it's around like 1%, right? That's correct. <laughs> exactly. So it's 1%. All right. So now I ask both of you, would you pay a 1% chance of an interception in order to gain a down against the New England Patriots, right? Obviously you would. That thought experiment sort of reveals the whole problem, right? If it's caught, it's great. If it's intercepted, it's the worst play in NFL history. And this is a problem that we call resulting in cognitive science. It has a name called outcome bias. So resulting is basically saying, I'm going to take the, re the result of a decision and I'm going to work backwards from that to determine the quality of the decision itself, which is an error in the short run. If, if I only see it once, right, because it could go either way, we've observed a 1% outcome. Now, 1% is going to happen 1% of the time by definition. So we observe this very unlucky thing occurring, and then everybody screams it's a terrible play. And the problem is that it's not just, oh, you know, poor Pete Carroll getting, you know, massacred in the press. It's that this is happening all the time, and we're changing our behavior based on believing it's a bad decision. When actually, now I hope that I've gone through the math, you can see it's actually probably one of the most brilliant decisions in Super Bowl history to buy an extra down for a 1% chance of an interception. But we don't perceive it that way. And so then the question is, will people now learn the wrong lesson from that um, going forward? And we learn we learn those wrong lessons all the time, right? Because of this, this resulting problem. And, and so that's really like, I think one of the biggest things that we have, and it's a particular problem in sports, in trying to get to how do we run good process, but we have to overcome these short-term outcomes that are distorting the way that we view what a good or bad decision is. Right. And it's fair to look at the opposite of that too, where you might make the wrong decision or a low probability decision and have a good outcome. And as you said, learn the wrong lesson that this leads to success or miss the opportunity to understand what might have given a higher probability of success. And that happens all the time in sports as well. Well, that that's exactly right. I mean, there's there's been some like, like you know, as an example, we can think about, you know, a, a team that doesn't go for it on fourth down when they ought to and they win the game anyway. Right now, now what will happen is that people will tend to not examine that decision because they won, because they're not really looking for uh, the places where they could pick, could have picked up some win probability. Right. So this is happening all the time where, you know, someone takes a lucky shot or uh, or, you know, there's a whole bunch of sort of bad decisions in there where they're not maybe maximizing in terms of like win probability, for example, where they end up winning anyway even though there were some poor decisions. Well, Annie, that brings to mind a, a game we played last year. So we were playing on the road. We were ahead by three with less than a minute to go. This is a basketball game. And we play two, three zone defense probably 98% of the time, but we're defending the other team throwing the ball in underneath their own basket. So without a timeout, we have a call to be able to match up man to man. So we make the call. They throw the ball inbounds. Their best player gets a wide open three. She misses. They get the rebound, throw it outside. The best player gets another wide open three and misses. And we get the rebound and end up winning the game. Yeah. And everybody after the game says, coach, what a great idea to change your defense, you know, without using the timeout there. And I'm thinking, what a horrible idea, because we let their best player have two wide open threes. And we were just lucky that she happened to miss both of them. See, that, that's a great example. Um, 
And uh, an example from someone who actually has thought about this stuff, because obviously you recognize that uh, actually it was a pretty bad decision and you got pretty lucky. Uh, but when people see it, they can't see that right now. We And we can rewind in the other direction. Imagine that on one of those two wide open threes, she had scored. Then people would have been coming at you saying, why did you change the defense? That was completely ridiculous. So so this is this is the problem that we have, right, is that what we're really trying to do as decision makers is to maximize the chances that we get an outcome that we like. Right. That's really what we're trying to do. And obviously, sort of depending on the payoffs, but we can just say, like, if we're trying to win a game, every decision that we make is trying to maximize win probability. You know, we can make a series of decisions where let's say that like we can take a situation either where we're a favorite or an underdog. But I think it's interesting to think about if we're an underdog. Like, let's say that we go into the game and we're only 40% to win, all things being equal, right? Because the other team is just quite a bit better. We can either make decisions that will cause us to be 30% to win, demonstrably a bad way to coach, right? Because we're 30% to win. But guess what? We're still going to win 30% of the time. But notice in that case, we're not brilliant coaches. Likewise, we could go in as, you know, 40% to win, and but we could coach in a way that gets us to 55% to win. Now I would call you a brilliant coach, but notice 45% of the time you're gonna lose that game, even though you coach brilliantly, right? And in that case, people are gonna look and say, oh, you did such a bad job. You can't see through to the decision-making. Basically kind of what happens is that the, the outcome puts blinders on you. So it happens that in a case where the outcome aligns with the quality of the decision, right? You're looking at that saying, oh, they're so bad to change my defense. If you had lost that game, people would have then realized it was a bad decision. Likewise, if you're you're a big underdog going into a, a match and uh, you coach, you know, you you it's the most brilliant coaching of your life and you end up winning, people will recognize it. But it's when they misalign that we get into big trouble because we we, we don't work backwards in that way in, in, a, in a way that actually gets us to what the quality of the decision is. And we don't recognize sort of two things, right? One, one is how much luck is involved, right? I mean, I can, I can coach in a way where I'm 55% to win, but 45% of the time I'm going to lose. And that's really due to luck. So there's not a lot I can do about that. That's problem number one. And then problem number two is just there's a, just a lot of stuff that we don't know and we can't know where the decision could be bad if we were omniscient. But given what we know, it was a good decision. An example of that actually comes from the, the 2015 Super Bowl. So Bill Belichick had actually been practicing the play that he ran on that that last play, you know, where Malcolm Butler goes into the pass coverage. Uh, he'd been practicing it actually since the beginning of the season, but there had never been a situation that came up where it made sense for the Patriots to use that particular um, defense. So this is a defense that while New England has been practicing it, is not on film. Therefore, Pete Carroll cannot know that Bill Belichick has like invented this new coverage, and he cannot know that that play is is sort of in Belichick's back pocket. Because there's no way for him to know that. There's there's no film of it. So I've had some people say to me, uh, well, Bill, you know, Belichick was practicing that play. So that, that means it's a bad decision. And it's like, no, it only means that it's a bad decision if Pete Carroll wasn't knew that and was not taking it into account. That's separate and apart from even if you know that that he's got that coverage in his back pocket, it's still probably the right thing to pass there. But regardless, that's an unknowable to Pete Carroll. And and that's a thing that people also struggle with, right? Is that in hindsight, 
we sort of think, well, you should have known everything that we now know. Uh, and that's a bias called hindsight bias. So we can see how like resulting in hindsight bias uh, really get us into trouble. Resulting is basically like ignoring the luck. And hindsight bias is thinking that you should have known what we know after the fact, which of course is impossible, less a time machine. I want to ask you just a follow-up question to that too, because as I was reading the book and I've listened to a number of your podcasts, when this word luck comes up, I think sometimes it's like, well, we're just leaving it up to the gods, you know, or the the odds or whatever it might be. Is that sort of a catch-all term for the things that we don't control that influence the outcome? Or how would you define what, what you mean when you say, well, you know, there's 45% of it is just luck? Basically, any from our point of view, anything that's outside our, of our control would be considered luck. Uh, I think like one of the best examples would be the pandemic, right? Like I could have made all sorts of really amazing decisions uh, in the fall of 2019. And then the pandemic hit, I have no control over a pandemic. And that that could ruin my plans one way or the other. So when we think about like, are we going to realize a good or a bad outcome? That's under the influence of luck. Now, what I want to be clear is that when we make decisions, once we decide, that locks in the probability of observing a good or a bad outcome, the probability of that occurring. What our decisions can do for us is change those probabilities. But ultimately, even if you make a decision that's going to work out for you 95% of the time, 5% of the time you're going to observe a bad outcome, and that's just totally out of your control. So you have to be okay with that. I think that one of the problems that we have is that we have this saying of, you know, I make my own luck. And it, you don't. You make a decision that changes the probability of different things occurring. So I can reduce the chances of having something happen that I'm unhappy about. Right? So I, I can do that. So so an example is um, if I go through a green light, I have drastically reduced the chances that I will get in an accident. If I go through a red light, I have increased the chances that I will get in an accident. But that doesn't mean that if I go through a red light, I'll actually get in an accident, nor does it mean if I go through a green light, I won't get in an accident. That's determined by luck, whether I do or I don't, because I don't have control over the other drivers on the road. Uh, and I think that that's something that uh, people have a really hard time with. Um, I think that it makes people very uncomfortable to sort of acknowledge that there is a randomness to things, but there is a randomness to things. You know, and you know, one of the things, for example, they say in tennis that, you know, if someone wins 55% of the points, they're, they'll win the match every time. Notice they're losing 45% of the points, right? So I think that we have to remember, it's like, if we're maximizing our win probability, then we're okay. Because of course, we're going to lose some, right? Whether that's in sports or life or whatever, we're, you know, we're going to get in some accidents going through green lights, but that's okay. Because if over time we keep going through green lights, we'll be, you know, we're going to have good outcomes on average. This all reminds me of when I moved from America to Ireland years ago, almost 20 years ago, and I started coaching, a very common phrase Irish people would use when they don't get a good outcome on, say, when I was coaching basketball, it would be like, oh, that's hard luck, man. You know, like guy takes a shot, he misses it. I remember one time early in my coaching career, losing my mind and going, no, it's not hard luck. That's a bullshit shot. And just like blowing up on my team because this was such a common phrase. And I'm like, right. no, it's not luck. You know, I, I just thought that was a funny, you know, it just made me think of, uh, of your story there. <laughs> well, so, so that, that's actually, there's, there's another bias 
which I think is kind of interesting, which sort of it points to this, which is called self-serving bias. So let me give you the distinction between these two. So we've talked about resulting, which is if you get a bad outcome, it's a bad decision. If you get a good outcome, it's a good decision. But notice in this particular case, we're talking about Pete Carroll. We're not talking about us, right? So I'm not telling you about my own decision. I'm saying Pete Carroll's decision, right? And if Pete Carroll, you know, if it gets intercepted, I think he's terrible. If it's caught for the game-winning touchdown, I think he's amazing. But what's interesting is we do something a little different with ourselves. And with ourselves, we do something called, we engage in something called self-serving bias, uh, which is basically exactly what it sounds like, but it's, oh, that was hard luck, right? Which is when we get a bad outcome, we will, now we're perfectly happy to attribute it to luck, right? Oh, that was really hard luck. I can't believe that. When you get a good outcome, you attribute it to skill. So this is very common in poker. When you lose a poker, was like, oh my gosh, I got so unlucky. You know, I had aces. The other person had fives. I was, you know, eighty-two percent to win the hand. I got so unlucky. I can't believe I lost. So you're you're just attributing it to these things that you don't have any control over. Whereas when you win, you talk about how well you played, even though in there somewhere might have been you having fives and the other person having aces. No matter that, you're just like, I'm amazing. I'm great. I did so well. That's why I won. So basically what we can think about when we're sort of processing for ourselves, that we can think about kind of four relationships between decision quality and the quality of the outcome, right? So we can think about a good decision resulting in a good outcome, right? So we could call that like an earned reward, a good decision resulting in a bad outcome. That's bad luck, right? That was such dumb luck, Uh, but we'll call it bad luck. Then you can have a bad decision resulting in a good outcome. So let's call that dumb luck, right? So we have bad luck or hard luck, but we also have dumb luck. And then we can have a bad decision that results in a bad outcome, which is just desserts. We can think about this. When we think about good outcome, bad outcome, imagine if as a decision maker, you yourself are motivated when you're thinking about your own outcomes to process the world in a way that gets you to a good decision right? Because we don't want to believe that we're bad decision makers. That would make us feel pretty bad about ourselves. So we're trying to process it the world in a way that gets us to a good decision. So what that means is that nothing's ever going to be dumb luck, meaning we won even though we were we played poorly. And nothing's ever going to be just desserts. We won because we played really badly. It's always going to be either earned reward or bad luck or hard luck. And we can see this even with sports fans. So what's really interesting with sports fans is when their sports team wins, they say we won. But when their sports team loses, they say they lost. Even there, right? They're not even on the field, but because they're identified with the team, they're taking, you know, as an individual fan, you know, I'll take credit for the win by saying we, but then I offload the loss to sort of nothing to do with me by saying they. If I'm playing poker, And every time I win, I think I'm brilliant. And every time I lose, I think that it was because of bad luck. I'm probably not going to become very good at poker. Because the issue is that obviously, while it's not 100% correlated, that it's not the case that every time I make a bad decision, I get a bad outcome. Or every time I make a good decision, I I get a good outcome. It is somewhat correlated, certainly in the long run. And so uh, I have to be sort of looking in there for the mistakes that I made. And Nate, you gave a very good example, right, where you won a game. And you weren't just saying, oh, that was brilliant, which is what the other people were saying. You were thinking about, well, really, what were the quality of the decisions that I made? Because I need to try to figure out whether that, what what box is that supposed to go into? 
right? Was that an earned reward or was that dumb luck? Now, your determination there was that it was dumb luck, but that's incredibly unusual for people to do that. And you can see why we're all kind of motivated to feel good about ourselves. We're all motivated to think that we're very skillful at what we do. We're great decision makers. We like to feel uh, like we're sort of better than the other people or the other team. And in some ways, you know, from a short term psychological standpoint, when you say, yeah, we won the game, but boy, that was really bad that, you know, because I, I left her open, wide open for three pointer twice. And that so that was really bad. In some ways, you're kind of taking away a win for yourself. You're taking away a psychological win, even though it's good for you in the long run. Obviously, you're going to be a better coach for it in the long run. It's the right thing to do. But in the moment, don't we do, do we really want to give up that ability to feel good about ourselves? And then you have the opposite problem of when you lose. We don't want to feel bad about ourselves. We want to find a way to feel good about ourselves. And so when we can offload it, we can feel better. And that doesn't mean that we have to say the other team was lucky or we were unlucky. Sometimes we can just say they were just so much better than us. But when you say they were so much better than us, you don't necessarily do the work of, well, but were we as good as we could have been? Even if it's the case that you would have been a favorite to lose, even if you were the most amazing coach ever. You know, the question is, if under, you know, an average coach, you're going to win 20% of the time, but under your coaching, you're going to win 30% of the time. Yeah, mostly you're going to lose. Mostly they're going to be better, but you need to obsess about that, right? You need to obsess about that 10%. And one of the things that happens when we say, well, the other team was just better is we forget to look and see, but, but yeah, okay. But what do we max Did we really maximize our chances against them? Well, I think one of the other things that's hard in coaching coaching and you alluded this to a little a little bit before is that Pete Carroll makes a decision and then in the national news he's called an idiot and there's also just part of us that wants to once we make the declaration of this is the play call we're changing this defense our brains naturally go to a defense mechanism to look for evidence to justify that decision rather than re-examine the decision right and that can be problematic for coaches and leaders as well well so okay so I love that because this is also a business problem Let's actually think about the way that people react to things. So I want to, and in order to set this up, I actually want to give you another thought experiment, if that's okay. So I want you to imagine it's the 2015 Super Bowl and Pete Carroll hands the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. Remember, Marshawn Lynch isn't going to score half the time. Okay, so Marshawn Lynch gets stopped. It's the Patriots defense after all, right? So Marshawn Lynch gets stopped. Pete Carroll calls his timeout and he once again does the totally expected thing. He hands it off to Marshawn Lynch again. And he loses the, the the Super Bowl that way. So Marshawn Lynch just gets stopped twice. JP, you've been my headline person. Are the headlines the next day, what an idiot, worst play call in Super Bowl history, or are they something else? Maybe they're critical of Marshawn Lynch. They're probably, you know, or, or yeah, I mean, it could be anyways, but it's probably not the worst coach ever. Pete Carroll probably actually doesn't even get talked about, right? It's either, mm. you know, Marshawn Lynch didn't convert, or how about this? Uh, the Patriots defense held in the clutch, right? The Patriots defense is so good that clutch they held in this completely key situation, right? So notice that what happens is that when Pete Carroll does the expected thing and loses that way, the blame shifts off of him onto other people. So we can sort of think about this, right? When you do the thing that's expected, the thing that's status quo, the thing that is consensus, and you get a good outcome, people are like, good job. 
right? And we know that because if Pete, if Marshawn Lynch had scored, people would be saying, oh, the Seahawks are great, but they wouldn't be saying anything in super particular about uh, Pete Carroll. It would have been more in the sort of good job, like great going kind of thing. They would, probably wouldn't have even been like talking about him in the last play. They were just saying like Marshawn Lynch scores the clutch touchdown, right? So it would have been like the sort of pat, great job. If you do the consensus status quo, the usual thing, and you have a bad outcome, people are like, yeah, that was kind of bad luck. What could you do? And remember, the Patriots defense from our standpoint is luck. So they say, oh, the Patriots defense was too good. But if you do something that's out of consensus, that breaks the status quo, that is not what people expect, and you have a good outcome, people call you a genius. But if you have a bad outcome, people call you an idiot. Now, there's an important concept in cognitive science and in behavioral economics, which is called uh, loss aversion. This is a part of prospect theory from uh, Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate, uh, and his collaborator, Amos Tversky, going back to the 70s, where what they found was that people um, experience the feeling of a loss uh, about uh, around two times as intensely as an equivalent uh, sized win. And I'm sure you know this, right? As coaches, uh, people take losses much harder then they take wins. So you can think about it like this. If I lose $50 at blackjack, that feels as bad as winning $100 at blackjack. Okay, so I have to like win basically twice as much in order to get the same emotional feeling, right? On the good side as I do on the downside. Okay, so what that means is that we really try to, uh, when we make decisions, we're making decisions in a way where we're trying to avoid losses particularly losses that are going to feel really bad to us, which means losses that we're going to feel blamed for. Now, in that description that I just gave you, there's only one way to really get blamed for a loss, and that's to do something unexpected where you get a bad outcome, because that's the idiot box, what I call the you're an idiot box, like Pete Carroll. Because if you do something ex that's expected or consensus or status quo where you get a bad outcome, it's just sort of bad luck. And so we can think about that, like when you get in a postmortem, which is kind of what the fans are and the pundits are doing to you, right? They're they're sort of like they're they're allowing all those sort of losses that are coming from expectation to sort of go away, and they're really just focusing in on on this one idiot box. Now, there's only kind of two ways to avoid that, right? One is to never take any risks so that you don't lose. That that's hard in sports, but the other way you can do it is to actually just stick with the status quo. So I can give you lots and lots of examples of how this problem has happened and it's taken a long time for certain things to shift because there is so much risk to a coach of what the pundits are going to say, what the fans are going to say, if you do something unexpected. So let's take, for example, the three-point shot. The math on that has been clear since the days of Larry Bird. Can you imagine if someone was really telling Larry Bird to go practice three-pointers? I mean, I think he might've been better than Steph Curry. I don't know. I mean, Steph Curry is obviously really good, but Larry Bird was a hell of a shooter. But they, were, they weren't telling Larry Bird to shoot three-pointers. They were telling him to stand inside and shoot two. Now, look, on the face of it, three is greater than two. In fact, 50% greater than two. They worked out the math where they were figuring out, you know, initially they sort of got it wrong because they were sort of taking all two-pointers versus three-pointers. And a lot of those two-pointers are under the rim. So uh, once they started saying, well, what if you're a two-pointer that's kind of close to the three-point line? Or if you step over that line, like which is better? And obviously the three-point shot is way better. Okay, so we've known about that for a long time, but it wasn't until really kind of the Houston Rockets that we started seeing a whole, you know, in the aughts under Daryl Morey that we start seeing a lot of three-point shooting. Why did it take so long? Well, because it's unexpected. 
So if somebody hits a two misses a two pointer, that's, you know, kind of a long shot, people aren't going to really say anything. But if you cross that line and you go for the three, what are people going to say? Like you're greedy. That's ridiculous. Why didn't you just go for the two? So on and so forth. So you're going to get much more blamed on the downside for a three-pointer when it's not yet consensus. Now, what happened obviously was the Rockets and then you had the war, you know, the Golden State Warriors. And, you know, so people started shooting three-pointers and then it, then that now became the status quo. So in basketball, it's now flipped, but it took a really long time. It took decades before someone was like, why'd you step inside the line? You're dumb. Okay, we can take going for it on fourth down. How long did that take? There were high school coaches doing it in Texas in the 90s who had figured out the math on it. The math was so clear. But if a team went for it on fourth and failed and the other team got a possession and scored on that, what do you think everybody, I mean, people's heads were going to explode, right? So it took a really long time of people generally actually like Bill Belichick, who was so proven because he had so many championships under his belt that nobody was really going to question him, right? So he's got the protection of everybody assuming, actually, we can make the analogy. Why don't you get blamed for going through a green light? Because everybody knows going through a green light is a, is a good decision. So why doesn't Bill Belichick get, get blamed going forward on fourth? Because he has so many championships, he's like a green light. People assume he's making good decisions. But it takes somebody like him to finally change the way that people are thinking about this. So the status quo is now going for it on fourth. It's now, you know, going for those two-point conversions. And we still have places where we know the analytics, but people aren't willing to put them in because they're afraid of getting yelled at, pulling the goalie. They don't do it because if someone hits a, you know, shoots a goal into that open, into that open net, you're going to get yelled at, even if mathematically it increases your chances to pull the goalie. Um, that's for both soccer and obviously for um, hockey. In soccer, um, when when there's a free kick, the stats tell us you're supposed to just stay in the middle, but nobody does. Because if it goes to one side or the other, it's like, well, you're an idiot, even though we know what the statistics say, right? So, so we can see this happening all the time in a way that stops innovation, that lowers win probability. And, you know, obviously we, we know the teams that picked up this, these good, great decisions early, look at the Rockets, right? Or the Warriors dominated. And then all of a sudden, all the other teams are trying to catch up. But it takes, you know, it's these early adopters that end up winning to that. But it's it's this exact problem that you brought up, Nate. All right, that's it for part one of our conversation with Annie Duke. We'll be back for more in our next episode. And we'll be unpacking how to detach from results and overcome our fear of failure. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to check out another episode of the podcast, episode 320 on the mind trap of rightness. This is the second mind trap we unpack in our five-part series there that we're doing over the next few months on these mind traps. And rightness completely connects to what we were talking about in today's episode. Thanks for listening in to today's episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast. If you find it valuable, we'd ask you to take 30 seconds to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and then share this episode with a few of your friends. Your support goes a long way into growing transformational leaders in the world. Coach, are you struggling to hold your athletes accountable to cultural standards? Do you have athletes that aren't living up to the standards and practices, games, or in the classroom? You're not the only one. Holding athletes to high standards in a way that strengthens relationships instead of damaging them is a critical and difficult skill to master. But we all know how essential it is. Failing to effectively hold athletes accountable can sabotage your culture and break trust between you and your team. And to be honest, 
There's just a better way of holding athletes accountable than the old school methods of punishing them with conditioning or yelling at them, which is why I'm excited to share with you one of our latest online courses, Holding Your Athletes Accountable. In this self-paced online course, you'll get a blueprint for how to hold your athletes accountable in a way that enforces your standards and maintains strong relationships at the same time. The course covers three types of consequences you can use to enforce your standards and how to know if it's time to remove a culture killer from your team. The course contains four modules and over 23 lessons that will help you hold your athletes accountable to the standards of your team or program. To get access to the course, go to tocculture.com forward slash store or click the link in the show details.